0: Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AIA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the Australian National University and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi again, Alan. Hi, Darren. It's a Friday, the 17th of June today, and wow, we have had an unbelievably dense few weeks of Australian foreign policy. On our last episode, which you'll recall served as our incoming government brief, we touched upon Prime Minister Anthony Albanese and Foreign Minister Penny Wong visiting Tokyo for the Quad Leaders Meeting. And at that point, the Foreign Minister had just gotten on a plane to travel to Fiji, well, since then, the Prime Minister has visited Indonesia and hosted Kiwi Prime Minister Ardern. Foreign Minister Wong completed her trip to Fiji and also completed a separate trip to Samoa and Tonga. Then this week, she's travelled to New Zealand and onto the Solomon Islands. And then Defence Minister Richard Miles also attended the Shangri-La Dialogue in Singapore and flew from there to Japan, wrapping up that visit just a few days ago, and then announced that he's going to visit India next week. And along the way, of course, speeches have been given, interviews have been offered, and this is the bread and butter of this podcast. So Alan, there has been a lot of bread and butter for us to consume these past few weeks. I am full to overflowing, but before we focus on some of the specific items, can I get you to situate this flurry of activity in context? Yes, I suppose the Quad Leaders meeting and the Shangri-La dialogue were locked in, but the Prime Minister, the Foreign Minister and the Defence Minister have all added to that in spades. Is this much energy so early into a new government normal?
1: Well, never in my experience or or knowledge, uh, Darren. Uh, As a baptism for the incoming government, it certainly wasn't a gentle sprinkle of water at the front. It was a full-body immersion in a surging river. Because of Scott Morrison's decision about election timing, some of that was inevitable, as you noted. Uh, You know, the Quad meeting in Shangri-La were always fixed events. But the timing and destination of the foreign minister's three Pacific trips and the PM's visit to Indonesia were driven by other factors. I've thought a lot about this, and having written a book about the history of Australian foreign policy since 1942, Fear of Abandonment, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, Darren, but a new edition was recently released by the Trobe University Press.
0: Oh, you know what, Alan? I had forgotten, so I'm grateful for the reminder.
1: Yeah, no problem.
0: Anyway, the point,
1: (laughs) point is that you do have to go back to Gough Whitlam's election in 1972 to see anything comparable to this. But Whitlam's immediate actions, recognition of China and withdrawal of the final Australian troops from Vietnam, had been foreshadowed during the election, and they didn't require ministers to fan out across the world like this. And look, it's not as though there aren't other demands on the new government as well, soaring inflation, critical energy problems. And in addition, the ministerial offices have not yet been fully set up. And the public service is still learning how to brief and deal with their new ministers. So it's been, been quite a
0: welcome. And I'm sure a number of late nights for members of the public service for that matter. Well, Alan, it's hard to know where to begin with this cornucopia of content. I've decided to lead with the events of the Shangri-La Dialogue in Singapore, which as everyone will know, is the annual congregation of a very large number of defence ministers and other security officials and military officers, which is convened by the IISS. This was the first Shangri-La dialogue since 2019, and there are three things I want to cover. First, Defence Minister Miles's speech. Second, his meeting with his Chinese counterpart, Defence Minister Wei Fenghe. And third, some US-China dynamics. But let's start with the Defence Minister's speech. Obviously, his first major speech as minister. And there were two things, Alan, that jumped out to me in particular as a theorist. But I want to get your overall assessment first and what was notable to you about the speech.
1: Well, the first thing to say is that it was, as a speech, excellent. It was designed to send messages both to people in the room who were, as we know, the the great and the good of the Indo-Pacific security scene, And to articulate more widely the messages of continuity and change that the new Labour government wanted to deliver, it was well-crafted. That is, there was a coherent argument through it rather than just random cutting and pasting of recent statements. The message essentially was that Labour comes to government with a deep commitment to the region around around us, beginning with the Pacific, where Miles explained his own history, and he was Minister for the Pacific in the last Labour government, and Southeast Asia. He mentioned the renewed focus on climate change, which he said would now factor into Australia's defence planning and defence diplomacy. He emphasised a change in what he called Australia's tone. Now, that's interesting, tone rather than content. I'll quote him here. It is in the character of Australians, to be frank. We will always be forthright in articulating our national interest and in advocating for our region's security. But this government will be respectful, including countries where we have complex relationships. This includes China. Now, that was followed by a particular message to China. Australia values a productive relationship with China. China is not going anywhere and we will need to live together and hopefully prosper together. China's economic success is connected with that of our region, and then later on we will be steady and consistent, looking for avenues of cooperation where they exist while recognising China's growing power and the manner in which uh, that is shaping our region. He then went on to say that insecurity is what drives an arms race. So reassuring statecraft was essential, and he then outlined ways in which China might provide that reassurance to the region. But he also strongly reasserted the importance of the alliance with the United States and the government's commitment to AUKUS, though in contrast to some of the language of the last government, he focused on the practical procurement dimensions of AUKUS, rather than it, it being some new form of super-alliance. And he mentioned India, which, as you said, he'll, he'll visit very soon. Now, he ends on an interesting note, I thought. Um, Australia's investment in defence is directed at regional as well as national security because Australia aims to contribute to an effective balance of military power, and I'm quoting him here, that ensures no state will ever conclude that the benefits of conflict outweigh the risks, a balance in which the peace achieved by past generations and from which we prosper today can be our shared legacy for the future. Now, what strikes me about that is the move back to a more traditional view of security coming from a balance of power rather than the Morrison government's late And more ambitious formulations, such as a strategic balance that favours freedom.
0: Mm. It also it occurs to me that it is a bit more inclusive. I mean, Morrison was always focused on this is in Australia's national interest. Miles is saying our national interest is really shared more broadly, and we're not just acting for us; we're acting for everyone. That's an interesting contrast. Look, I. I cannot resist observing that Miles quoted my favourite Paul Keating's foreign policy speech, which Keating delivered in Beijing in 2013, long after he left office. And for those listeners with sharp memories, you'll recall that I quoted this speech at length back in episode 84, which we recorded in October of 2021. And the defence minister's extract was included in a longer quote that I laid out. So, If indeed the Defence Minister or his speech writers were listening back then, you're welcome. But patting myself on the back aside, at the time I observed that Keating's entire speech is less than a thousand words long, but in my view it might be the very best pieces of strategic analysis ever written by an Australian. There are two core themes in that earlier Keating speech that Miles picks up on in this more recent speech. The first is the responsibility of leadership. If China wants to lead, it needs to understand that accepting limits on its leadership is essential for a stable security equilibrium. And I like this approach because it shifts emphasis away from an oversimplistic framing of China simply through the lens of threat, through the prism of threat, towards, I think, a more sophisticated lens of responsibility. And you can make basically the same policy points. For example, don't be a bully and don't do dangerous stuff in the South China Sea, for example, but communicated through the sentiment of, look, China, you're making people afraid, and when they are afraid, they're going to react, and that's going to erode your credibility and prestige as leader, but it's also going to undermine the very stability that you say you want. The second theme from Keating's speech is reassurance, and and you mentioned that Miles brought this up, Alan. And reassurance, of course, is a security studies concept that in ordinary language really just means empathy. Peace and stability are not achieved until adversaries are able to put themselves in the shoes of each other, identify what the other's source of insecurity is, and take steps to address it. Reassurance acknowledges that I cannot be secure unless you feel secure too. Back in 2013, Keating was sending this message to Beijing with regards to Japan, Miles is saying it now applies really to the entire region. Now, the thing that the defence minister doesn't emphasise as much in this speech, but I do hope the new government understands, is that, of course, reassurance needs to go both ways. And it's very difficult to do because reassurance usually requires you to do things you don't otherwise want to do. So it's difficult for Beijing to reassure Australia and our partners, and it's going to be difficult for Australia and our partners to reassure Beijing. And it is possible that at this point in time, neither side is ready to do this yet. But in the long term, we cannot only rely on deterrence to achieve peace and stability. There's going to need to be a combination of deterrence plus reassurance. Now, Alan, at the dialogue, of course, Miles met with China's Defence Minister, Wei Feng-He, breaking a diplomatic freeze of high-level ministerial contact that had been in place since January of 2020. The immediate context for this meeting was also somewhat fraught, it being revealed that a Chinese fighter jet had flown very close to a RAAF P-8 surveillance aircraft in late May in the South China Sea and dangerously releasing some aluminium chaff, small pieces of aluminium, I guess, that had flown into the P8's engine and understandably made the crew very afraid that the ship, the, the plane might go down. Alan, Miles described this meeting as a critical first step and emphasized that it was the very complexity of the bilateral relationship that made dialogue so important. Two things jumped out to me. First, a point you've already made that Miles emphasized again at the press conference that this was a change of tone from Australia, not a change in Australia's national interests. And second, the fact that the meeting had not been prearranged. In the press conference, Miles explained that the two ministers had been seated next to each other at a dinner on the Friday night before the dialogue really kicked off, and there they personally agreed between themselves to have the meeting a couple of days later on the Sunday. Now, of course, I'm sure this possibility had been contemplated by both sides, but clearly it seems nothing had been locked in until the two men met at the dinner. So what did you make of all that? Well, as we've discussed before, I
1: wasn't, wasn't surprised there was breakthrough on high-level meetings because the situation in which Australia was the only G20 country without direct uh, ministerial contact uh, with Chinese counterparts just couldn't go on. It hurt China's interests as well as ours. I did think, however, that any breakthrough would probably come first in the trade area and I hadn't factored in the timing of the Singapore meeting. This does seem to be a genuine case of our old friend human agency, Darren. I've seen no reports that this was something stitched up in advance by officials, but it is good news, albeit just a restoration of relations to the point other American allies are uh, are at.
0: Yeah, I assume Wei would not have agreed unless he'd been given a green light in advance. So I think this is right. It's, it's consistent with a shift in in Beijing in Beijing's thinking. Not that they're willing to go too far, but on some level they see the status quo at the moment as being unacceptable and, and want to move in a more positive direction, and, that, and that's great. But now the hard work of threading the needle begins. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. No, we, we have to, Nick, to proceed little by little um, step by reciprocated step. In particular, we need to see uh, our ambassador in in Beijing receiving the kind of access to senior officials that his counterpart in Canberra gets. I don't see any sign that the government is getting too far ahead of itself uh, in any of this.
0: That's an interesting point, Alan. So what we need to look for is that our ambassador in Beijing, Graham Fletcher, has given... I guess equivalent access to Chinese government officials that's been granted to the PRC's ambassador here, Xiao Qian. That does strike me as I guess a low cost step that Australian government can initiate, like by meeting more with the ambassador here, to see if Beijing is really interested in moving forward by reciprocating. Is that do I understand that correctly? Yeah,
1: reciprocity is has been at the core of diplomacy for centuries. Interesting.
0: Okay, well finally let's zoom out a bit to the broader dynamics at the dialogue. Probably the most notable events were the first face-to-face meetings between the US Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, and the Chinese Defense Minister Wei, but also the speeches the two men would later give criticizing the other's countries. So the timing was quite curious to me here. You had the two defense officials meeting on the Friday, and then Austin giving his public remarks on the Saturday and Wei on the Sunday, and each having a go at the other. Austin criticized the dangerous activities by Chinese forces in the region, and um, interestingly, I think, argued that while the US's policy on Taiwan was not changing, it was China that was departing from the status quo as manifest by its growing coercion and other provocative and destabilizing military activity. But he also stressed that the U.S. was working to develop guardrails against conflict. Meanwhile, in his speech, Wei accused the U.S. of smearing and containing China and trying to create a, quote, exclusive small group in the name of a free and open Indo-Pacific to hijack countries in our region and target one specific country, end quote. So, Alan, I suppose a face-to-face meeting is good, but the general consensus seemed to be that the temperature continues to creep upward. Any comment on these broader dynamics?
1: Yeah, look, you got it right, Darren. Uh, it's it's a relationship constrained from very much forward movement on both sides by domestic politics and concerns and by um, Growing rivalry. But at the same time, I I do think you can detect on both sides an underlying consciousness of the need to manage the competition with care. And that is in sharp contrast to the sense of wild unpredictability that we had under Trump. So they are wary of each other, but the stakes, I think, are understood on both sides.
0: I couldn't resist actually doing a little bit of analysis of of Austin's speech. I couldn't find the Chinese defense minister's speech online in its entirety; I had to rely on extracts. But I looked at Austin's, and look, these are speeches designed for their audiences, which of course is the region and the world, but also audiences at home. And so it was interesting to me to try to pull out what message each was trying to send. At the start of his speech, Austin noted he, that he'd given a speech in Singapore back in last year, that was titled The Power of Partnerships. And in that earlier 3,000-word speech, which I, I pulled, the word partner, partners, or partnership appeared 22 times. In this past week's 4,200-word speech at Shangri-La, you see 35 appearances of the, of the word partner. So pretty consistent there. And I think the Biden administration is getting this right. The emphasis on partners is the U.S.'s I think, greater selling point and their greatest strength and a real gap in China's capabilities. And I think reminds us, as you alluded to also, Alan, the damage that Trump's transactional approach did, which really is much closer to the logic of China's win-win concept than it is enduring partnerships. But I think it's also a reminder that partners need something to offer to each other, and in the economic domain, at least, the US's offerings have been pretty thin. <clears throat> Still, it's not surprising then, I think, to see that, Defense Minister Wei targeted US claims to multilateralism with his criticism and he was trying to frame them as a negative trying to frame them as destabilizing because it would split the region into blocks exclusive blocks but I think if you if you look at at least the extracts I saw of Wei's speech and you can watch it online on YouTube it did portray a number of Chinese insecurities this time around in what everyone will recall is a very sensitive year for the Chinese Communist Party with the upcoming 20th Party Congress. Wei sought to celebrate China's COVID-19 management and its growing economy, but of course both are domains where pressure is currently increasing. He was quite forceful in his warnings about Taiwan and consistent in identifying the United States as the major contributor to all of the security challenges that China, and by extension, the world is facing. And to me, that message did seem less inviting to a regional audience, but maybe that's the point. Beijing's message is that every country can win within a China-led order as long as they respect China's interests. But I think what remains and what Beijing has never really clarified is what happens when there is a a conflict of interest, how that can be resolved in any other way than completely in China's favour. Anyway, all very interesting. Let's move on to our next item, which was Prime Minister Albanese's first big international trip to Indonesia for a two-day trip that began on Sunday, the 5th of June. Let's note, 15 days only after the federal election. He brought with him a sizable delegation of senior ministers and business figures. The Prime Minister met with his Indonesian counterpart, Joko Widodo, which included two of them taking a bike ride, on these very fancy bamboo bikes, I might add, around the grounds of the Bogor Presidential Palace. Which was a, a lovely personal gesture from the President that invoked both men's humble backgrounds as well as highlighting I think the the importance of the bicycle to the lives of, of Indonesians. Albanese then traveled to the city of Makassar, which is on the island of Sulawesi about two hours of flying east of Java um, and Jakarta, where he gave a speech to faculty and alumni at Hasa Nudin University that covered multiculturalism, climate change, energy and education. So, Alan, what's your assessment of the speech and and the visit overall? Well,
1: Albanese followed the pattern of every prime minister since Paul Keating in making Jakarta the destination of his first bilateral overseas visit. So the decision to go there wasn't unusual. What was unusual, as with the Quad, was the speed with which it happened so soon after the election. That was a sign of real commitment on the PM's part and the business delegation that went with him was a, a signal of common interest with President Wadodo in elevating the pretty unsatisfactory level of trade and economic links between the two countries. Now, God knows how DFAT and the Jakarta Embassy got it to come together on, on time, the organisational task of rounding up. Australian business leaders must have been massive. But it was important, not just for the signal it sent to Indonesia, but for the opportunity it gave the incoming Prime Minister to generate interest in his international policy priorities with some pretty senior business figures. And as you said, the although Albanese had been to Indonesia, as he, as he noted many times before, this enabled him to set up personal bonds with uh, Jokowi.
0: Let me actually hold on that organisational challenge for a moment, Alan. So I assume that no one inside DFAT would have made any communications to the Indonesians regarding a leader's meeting prior to the election. So it's literally a case of a call being made maybe the day the PM is sworn in on the Monday to President Jokowi's office to ask how quickly he can slot in the new Prime Minister into his calendar. And then assuming... A pretty quick reply, the calls are flying around Australia to cobble together this business delegation. Is that how it would have worked?
1: Yeah, Look, well, something like that. The memoirs of Penny Williams, our ambassador in Jakarta, will be interesting when they, they come out in many years' time.
0: I was going to say, it must have been a lot of late nights you know, for the for the staff in, in Jakarta. Oh, yeah.
1: No, yeah. oh, no, exactly. Look, uh, you asked about the speech at the university. Like Miles's, I thought it was excellent. And what was important was what the PM said about Australia and how that led him to think about Australia-Indonesia relations. So it was a speech more about national identity in many ways than than foreign policy. He began with the centuries-old trade between Makassar and the Yonglu people of Arnhem Land. These visitors from eastern Indonesia were the first Muslims he noted, to visit Australia. And that then led him into a long discussion about Australian multiculturalism and the presence on his delegation of Ed Husick, who's Australia's first Muslim cabinet minister and who, he pointed out, was sworn in carrying the Quran. The speech then flowed into a discussion of, as you said before, you know, climate and education and science cooperation. I thought, again, it was a very well-crafted message of change in Australia and practical ambitions for the Australia-Indonesia relationship. And another thing I should note in passing that resonated during the visit was Penny Wong's ability to tweet out a message in Bahasa, Indonesia. I don't know if you saw that, Darren.
0: Yes. Yeah, not just a tweet but a video of her speaking Bahasa for a, that ran for almost a minute. Um which was uh, yeah very impressive. Her
1: Bahasa was certainly more fluent than the PMs when he, he tried to end of his uh, uh, dinner in Jakarta.
0: Yeah, look, I think it's it's really worth quoting a short extract from the PM's speech because I thought it was wonderful. So here we go. Quote: As we speak of the friendship between our two nations, it is particularly fitting to be in Makassar. Centuries ago, the sea route between here and northern Australia was alive, with a flourishing trade. Each December, the Yolngu people of Arnhem Land would look to the sea, waiting for the horizon to fill with the sails of Makassan vessels. The Yolngu people immortalised these boats in their art, and you can find them painted on sandstone and bark, their sails forever full with the wind that brought them across the sea. The long relationship between the Makassan seafarers and First Nations people of Australia was built around trade. But what was most striking was that it was built on mutual respect, a relationship of equals. It laid down the foundation stone for the people-to-people contact that is at the very heart of Australia's relationship with the people of Indonesia, end quote.
1: Yeah, I just in, intervene there, Darren, to, to say that just before the COVID lockdowns began a couple of years ago, I visited that site in Arnhem Land and was able to see that extraordinary rock art. It, it really is a, a remarkable story.
0: Mm, I, I would love to bring my family there. I, I just want to emphasise, I think, the ability of that historical image really, I think, neatly projects the kind of message that we need to send to Jakarta and really to the region. Geographically, we are neighbours. And because we are neighbours, we have a centuries long legacy of commercial and people to people links. And it is this legacy that should serve as the foundation for building a relationship into the future, which I think is, is a very neat formulation. And look, the hard matters of practical cooperation, whether on economics or security, lie ahead. But I think we're pointing in the right direction. Let's move on then to the travels of Penny Wong, uh, who, in addition to accompanying the Prime Minister to Tokyo for the Quad Leaders Meeting and to Jakarta, made two separate trips to Fiji and then to Samoa and Tonga, and I should note, then this week to New Zealand and Solomon Islands. She gave a speech in Suva to the Pacific Islands Forum Secretariat on the 26th of May, which was her fourth day in the job as Foreign Minister, um, where the explaining that the new government's focus on climate change really was a central theme. While in Fiji, she met with the Fijian Prime Minister, Frank Bainimarama, and the following week, she then flew to Apia in Samoa, where she concluded an eight-year partnership agreement focusing on human development with the Samoan government including the donation of a new patrol boat to replace one that was lost last year. In Tonga, discussions also centred around foreign aid, uh, visiting workers, and trade. Now, of course, we really must recall, though, that Senator Wong's visit bookended an eight-country, ten-day trip by the Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi. We've discussed that previously, Alan, but I think it's worth noting that a couple of days after we published our last episode, It was reported that Pacific nations had declined to sign a region wide trade and security deal with China. An announcement that was made by the Fijian prime minister on the grounds that there had not yet been consensus among the Pacific states. And he also noted that he sought a stronger commitment from China on climate change. Samoa's Prime Minister, Fiamme, said that the nations just had not had the opportunity to consider and discuss the agreement in detail. So Alan, while of course we welcome this energetic diplomacy from the foreign minister so early into her term of office, her travels did parallel those of her Chinese counterpart and that really is the unique dynamic here. So how did you react to all of this?
1: I can't think of any piece of advice handed out by South Pacific specialists to Australian governments of all descriptions about the Pacific, which hasn't emphasised the importance of personal engagement with leaders. So it was impressive that Penny Wong took this advice so early and travelled to the region to follow up the promises on the Pacific, which had been made during the election campaign. And as we noted, during the the campaign the pacific was really the one area where the then opposition had specific proposals to make she was careful to emphasize that she was there as a new australian foreign minister and not you know in in response to the chinese visit but it obviously had the effect she wanted in slowing down developments and and helping the pacific states to realize the need to think hard about the things they were being asked to sign on to by Beijing.
0: Alan, I've been reflecting on your rallying cry for PIF centrality in our last episode to re-establish the function of the Pacific Islands Forum as the region's principal institution through which the Pacific has traditionally engaged with outside dialogue partners. And I initially really liked the idea, but now I wonder whether there might be a problem that Australia and New Zealand are members of the PIF because that creates a slightly different dynamic than that inside of ASEAN and and the concept of ASEAN centrality because it strikes me that a collective response to China's engagement is the best way to ensure that the risks and downsides of that engagement are mitigated and further that pressure from within the region, internal pressure, will be the best or the most effective way of preventing individual governments from making hugely consequential decisions. But does Australia and and maybe New Zealand's membership of of the PIF kind of hamper that dynamic or or not?
1: You mean by sort of generating resistance because it might look as though we're pressuring the other members of the forum?
0: Yes, because we're too different in a sense. Like we exist with a a different relationship with our Pacific neighbours, and it's clear that we are the more powerful side. Look, if we posited Indonesia, say, as the most powerful member of ASEAN, it does not have a similar dynamic with the other ASEAN members that we do with the PIF. And I wonder if that complicates, you know, the the development of PIF centrality as a way of sort of engaging with the rest of the world. Yeah, not really. My view is that Australian
1: membership only helps this because for the most part, I won't go into the detailed history, but Australia and New Zealand are generally accepted as part of the Pacific Islands Forum. We've been there since its formation in 1971. There's there's a pretty deep-seated legitimacy about our engagement. It's been backed by financial, social and humanitarian assistance as well as deep people-to-people ties, which the incoming government wants to build further. So the Foreign Minister is now saying that Uh, security in the Pacific should be the responsibility of the Pacific family of which Australia and New Zealand are part. And that sounds very much like PIF centrality to me.
0: Mm. Okay, fair enough. Look, I don't have an alternative proposal. I guess all I'm saying is that my initial model of PIF centrality was quite similar to ASEAN centrality, but I don't think that quite works and I need to do some more thinking. (laughs) All right, well, let's quickly move on to our final item, which is AUKUS. Last week, the opposition leader, Peter Dutton, former defence minister, used an op-ed piece in the Australian newspaper to claim that he was confident that Australia could acquire two Virginia-class nuclear submarines by 2030 as a way of addressing the capability gap before our own nuclear submarine plans reach fruition. And that had the coalition won the election, it might have been quote, in a position to make an announcement around July, August, end quote. And that further, he was concerned that Labor would mess things up by building conventional submarines instead. Dutton has been criticised for revealing sensitive information with this op-ed and potentially disrupting plans by the US, the UK and Australia to make a joint announcement sometime this year. Separately, the new Prime Minister announced an agreement to pay some $835 million in compensation to the French Naval Group for cancelling the submarine contract, bringing the total amount spent on that program to $3.4 billion. Albanese said he looked forward to taking up French President Macron's invitation to meet with him in Paris soon. Alan, so two final questions on this. First, Look, if I understand correctly, had a bureaucrat done what Dutton did, would they just have been thrown in jail for violating laws on secrecy? What is the propriety of of him revealing this information and what do you think he was trying to achieve? I'm not sure about jail, but
1: for a public servant, there certainly would have been repercussions following the details that Dutton revealed. I can't see, well, I can see what he was trying to do here. I think he was trying to preemptively declare that he had already negotiated a solution to the so-called gap in submarine capabilities in the period between the last years of the Collins-class operations and the arrival of new, presumably, nuclear submarines. Now, this sounds doubtful to me and many people who know much more about the program than I do. So, look, I reckon the criticism his statement has received from both the government and from former officials is absolutely justified.
0: And then on the French compensation, I'm sure there are legal machinations here, but should we be viewing this hefty sum as really just the price of beginning to repair relationship with Paris?
1: I've genuinely got no idea whether this was a fair price or not, but the speed with which negotiations were completed suggests that both sides wanted to to move on. Look, it's a reminder that one of the great advantages of democracy is that it makes it so much quicker and easier to cut the thread on thorny problems and start afresh. We're seeing that clearly now, not, not just in the rapprochement with France, but the new approach to the South Pacific with climate change, the different tone in references to China, which led to the ministerial meeting in, in Singapore. Thinking about the way the government's gone about things so far, I'm impressed by speed of action and and clarity of purpose. The messaging to the outside world has been consistent across all the ministers, and those messages have been packaged effectively. So there's no question that there are going to be difficulties ahead, whether from outside events or, or in-house errors but you know so far so good
0: yeah one final point for me is to, to hold on that point about the advantages of democracy and and contrast that with the chinese system and this is a potentially a much longer conversation but it's not impossible for current chinese leaders to in some sense repudiate decisions of their predecessors there have been a couple of these so-called historical resolutions the most famous ones or Deng Xiaoping acknowledged some of the excesses of of Mao Zedong, and one was passed just last November, although this was more about, I think, elevating Xi Jinping than specifically criticising his predecessors. But importantly, the point here is that this is an unusual and fraught process for the party to go through, and otherwise it's very difficult for the party and for the Chinese government to admit error which I think then creates risks that errors get compounded because you can't walk away from them. And of course, we can't forget that the very reason policy changes are possible in a democracy is that voters are actually able to hold their leaders to account when errors get made. And that's what elections are for. So anyway, reading, listening and watching, Alan, what do you have for us this week? Well, first, a follow-up
1: to our last episode when I nominated Girl from the North Country, the play by uh, Conor McPherson, which is illuminated by songs from Bob Dylan. And I promised to let you know whether it was any good or not. And it is. It's great. And for Canberra listeners, it's well worth seeing when it comes here later in the year. But this week, I'm going to go with The Masses. Back in 1986, which I know is a very long time ago, I happened to be in Honolulu where I was visiting Paycom and I had a free afternoon just before catching my flight back to Australia. The original Top Gun movie had just been released so I spent a couple of hours in a theatre full of Americans at the height of the Reagan era patriotism and confidence soaking it all up and I loved it so I really wanted to see the unlikely sequel Top Gun Maverick when it hit the cinemas a couple of weeks ago. Now, as, as everyone has said, uh, Tom Cruise is in great shape at 60 and it's a terrific entertainment, though maybe the best line I read about it was from the excellent Time magazine movie critic Stephanie Zakarik, who wrote that it was, quote, much better than it needed to be, but anyway, the film doesn't need my recommendation. According to the internet movie database, its worldwide gross so far is something like seven hundred and fifty million US dollars. So what I wanted to do instead was to point to an article in the Financial Times by James Crabtree, who is the executive director of the Double in Singapore. So circling back to the Shangri La dialogue, Crabtree draws interesting geopolitical conclusions from the contrast between the 1986 film and this year's sequel, which he sees as, quote, a rather anxious kind of blockbuster filled with doubts about the durability of American power and functioning in many ways as an elegy for relative American decline. So America is a heroic fighter pilot hanging on in an age of drones.
0: So Tom, the trajectory of Tom Cruise's career, paralleling that of of the US (laughs) as a superpower. (laughs) Well, thanks, Alan. Uh, You've added to my urgency in wanting to see it. I don't have any new recommendations this week, so I'm going to follow up on mine from last time as well. Last Saturday, Rebecca and I went to see the Jezebels in concert here in Canberra, as I foreshadowed. We were in the 10%, maybe, of the audience who were wearing masks. And touch wood, um, fingers crossed, don't seem to have caught COVID as a result. But what I want to say is that in some ways it was a profoundly strange experience because we're crammed like sardines with a bunch of swaying, sweating, dancing, singing, and generally happy people. And I got bumped into a lot, right? like It was obviously normal in my concert-going days past, but... Very unfamiliar to me now, given the past couple of years, all these people brushing against me and touching me. was very weird, but it was also a sublime experience. The band played their anniversary album, but then did a five song encore of their greatest hits, which made everyone very happy. And I loved it. So my recommendation is to those of you maybe who have been reluctant to return to crowds that live music, while not without risk, is still thoroughly worth it. So that is all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We thank Annabelle Howard for audio editing today and Rory Stenning, of course, for composing our theme music. And we'll talk to you again soon.